Good morning. If you would go ahead, if you haven't already, open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to be beginning in our study in verse 23 and leak into chapter 2 uh, through all the way through verse 11 this morning. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, I know we have many faces here that are not uh, usually with us on Sunday night, but a couple of months ago on Sunday night, we studied in First Thessalonians how we can, and we asked the question, how can we encourage a faithful brother in whom we see no sin? But this morning, what I want to consider with you is how should we approach rebuking and correcting a brother or sister in Christ in whom we do see sin? The Corinthians had been led astray by boasters who boasted of their own abilities and of their own ministry in Christ. But they had strongly derided Paul's ministry and they had led astray the Corinthians by this criticism of Paul. And because of that, Paul's second visit to Corinth did not go well at all. Apparently, when Paul got to Corinth, it seems from the context of 2 Corinthians that some of these boasters, one or a few of them, essentially uh, stood up, got in the face of Paul and harmed him in some type of way, uh, probably just verbally. And abused him to his face, talked bad about his ministry to his face. And the thing that is even worse about that is that the Corinthians were drawn into this. They, uh, as we can see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 11, they did not provide any defense of Paul. Paul, the one that had fathered the faith, the, the, the one that had done so much work to teach them the gospel, the one that had suffered for their sake to teach them. They did not defend him when he was derided and slandered in their own midst when one of their brothers stood up and harmed him. And so, because of this, Paul left and did not return on a third visit as he had promised them he would. And so now, instead of that, Paul wrote, uh, probably a few months before, or a few weeks before, Paul wrote a strongly worded letter to them encouraging the Corinthians to repent of their wayward actions, to repent of their sin, and to separate from the ones who had harmed Paul and caused division in their midst, which it seems like from this letter in 2 Corinthians that they did repent. And Titus apparently did bring news that they did repent of their sins and did separate from those who had led them astray in sin. But now as Paul writes 2 Corinthians, which I believe this strongly worded letter is not one that we have. I believe it's written in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, my particular opinion there. But now as Paul writes 2 Corinthians, he is writing, defending himself for why he did not make this trip, this third promised trip that he said he was going to make. And why instead he wrote this strongly worded letter. And that really works out to our business. Benefit because as he is explaining that and defending himself, he explains his actions. He defends why he rebuked and how he rebuked and gives us an insight into how a brother ought to go about rebuking a brother or brothers and sisters rebuke brothers and sisters. Because as we recognize rebuking a brother or sister who has sinned 
is very difficult, especially if they've sinned against us. In our hearts, at many times we desire the relationship to be over after we've been sinned against or after we see grievous sins in a brother or sister's life. We are disappointed. We're hurt. We're tempted to lash out against them. But we all also know that the way we rebuke a brother or sister can end up being the difference between their repentance and their rebellion against God. I believe Paul's discussion here in this passage is extremely valuable to us because Paul here, as he explains his actions and his words, he explains to us and reveals to us the heart, approach, and words we should have as we rebuke a brother or sister in Christ. And so Tony has already read for us uh, chapter 1, verses 23 through chapter 2 and verse 4, but let's go ahead and read uh, chapter 1 and and verses 23. Through 24 again and reset what's happening here and what he says. He says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth again. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work for but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. I believe the first thing we see here, see here in this paragraph is that Paul calls him that Paul himself rebuked as a brother and not as a Lord, and that is something we should do as well. See, in the previous paragraph, Paul has explained that the reasoning for him writing a letter and not coming on his third visit was not because he was indecisive. We didn't read that previous paragraph, but that's what that describes. Now, as he gets to verses 23 and 24, he describes, okay, this is why I didn't come. This is why instead I wrote a letter. I want you to know I wrote a letter instead of coming as I had promised Because I wanted to spare you. It wasn't because I was indecisive. It's because I wanted to spare you that I wrote the letter. The letter would have been difficult for them to read. It would have been painful. But a rebuke face to face, that would have been a far more painful visit for Paul and for the Corinthians both. And so instead, he he says he wrote a letter to them to spare them that pain. But he does not want them to get this wrong idea about his ministry and about his relationship with them. As he says, he's sparing them pain. And so he explains his motives there in verse 24. He says, he does not lord it over their faith, but instead he decides to work with the Corinthians for their joy. I really like the New King James Version. It says, not that we have dominion over your faith, but we are fellow workers for your joy. I believe this is a very significant uh, distinction to make as we consider what it's like to rebuke a brother. Paul, though Paul had great apostolic authority, and though Paul had been sinned against, did not come in and impose the weight of his apostolic authority and rebuke them as some type of Lord over their faith. Uh, Even though they had sinned in a bad way, it was not time for Paul to whip them into shape as if he were their boss or as if he was ruling over them. How easily this can be a temptation for us when we've been sinned against or when we're correcting a brother or sister's sin. How easily we can be tempted to take an upper hand above them and come down at them as we correct them and rebuke them and come down at them as if and treat them as inferiors and treat them as if they're lower than us. 
can't that be such an easy temptation for us? But Paul here shows that that's not what he did. Even though he was an apostle, he did not treat them as if he was a Lord. He treated them as a brother. He worked alongside them for their joy. Why is it that we struggle correcting one another as if we are the Lord of someone's faith? Why is it that we struggle with that? I believe there could be a few different ways, but I believe this problem really begins in our minds. It begins with the problems in our minds, a problem in our minds. Really, I think we can be tempted at times to see ourselves as a type of prosecutor. When we see someone sin, we go to this place in our mind where we see someone sin and we begin building up this prosecution against them in their mind. Oh, I just know, man, I cannot believe what they have done. And don't we know how to just paint their sin in just the worst light possible? Oh, what they did, it was just disgusting. I could not even imagine doing such a thing that they did. It was absolutely, it was absolutely ridiculous, illogical for them to do this. We can paint this picture in our minds, this terrible picture of someone else in our minds when we see their sin or when they see when, or when they sin against us. We build this case against them. At least that's how it can all begin. And we think in this way, we think, how can I convict them? And it's really easy to do, too, isn't it? It's very easy. Anyone can build up this mental case against someone and paint someone in a terrible light. And it actually kind of empowers us. It's kind of addictive. It makes us feel good because we've recognized and painted uh, all the sins of someone else in this terrible light. We feel pretty good ourselves. And we feel like we're some rare, important person that has kept everything in line. But all the while, we've painted a terrible picture of someone else. And it's not that we always expose this terrible thought, all these terrible thoughts in our brains. But whenever we do have the opportunity and whenever we do decide to correct someone, this is the only way we've thought. The only thing we know is then to go to the place in our minds where we've always gone when we see someone sin or when someone sins against us. And we come to them as a Lord and we rule over their faith and we prosecute and convict them of their sin and we leave it at that and treat them as an inferior. See, the sin begins in the mind and then it plays out when we actually have the opportunity to correct them. But Christians... If we, whether we've been sinned against or not, that's not our place. If Paul did not see himself as some type of prosecutor or lord or ruler over the ones whom he himself had fathered in the faith, we certainly shouldn't do that. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel powerful. But it's not helpful to others to think in this way or to speak in this way. Instead, Paul describes himself as a fellow brother who works with them for their joy. I believe this can be the best reminder for us in our minds to remind ourselves when we've been sinned against or when we see someone sin. Remind myself, let's remind ourselves, I'm their brother to work for their, I'm here to work for their joy. I'm a fellow right here with them. And when we're about to go and correct someone, remind ourselves, let's remind ourselves, I'm not a Lord. I'm I'm not greater than them. 
No, I'm their brother. I'm their sister. I'm here to work for their joy. I'm here to help them along. But how is it that we can talk to them and talk to someone as a brother instead of a lord or a boss? Well, think about it like this. A lord or a boss or a prosecutor, all these different things or descriptions, what do they do? Well, they only tell you what's wrong and they do it in a pretty harsh way too. But a brother comes with humility and not only convicts and shows wrong in a gentle way, but then a brother, a true brother or sister continues from there to help them see how they can improve in their lives. A true brother or sister does the difficult thing and stays by them and helps them grow. Brothers don't only convict. Brothers and sisters that are true brothers and sisters in Christ build up and encourage. And they show them and help them along in their walk afterwards. And I believe this change in how we rebuke and correct one another needs to begin in our brains. When we see people sin, let's not think as a prosecutor thinks. Let's not think as a Lord thinks. Let's not paint their sin in a terrible light, even in our brains. Let's look at them as a brother or a sister would look at them. Let's consider when we notice their sin and as we're about to uh, help them out, as we're about to correct them. Let's be thinking in our minds, how can I word my correction In a way that would help them overcome their sin and not just be defeated by the revelation of their sin. Let's how can I use my words to not destroy them and make them just feel terrible? But how can I use my words to help them overcome that guilt and to have life and joy and restoration in Christ? That's how a true brother or sister thinks. That's how a true brother or sister corrects. And that takes a lot of work. That takes, that means that we have to pause before we correct. That means that we need to pause and change our way of thinking from the beginning. That means we need to craft our rebuke to not destroy, but to encourage. Let's correct as brothers and not as lords. I believe the second thing we see is right there in actually verse 24. We need to rebuke with an understanding of their spiritual condition. It's really easy to miss this. I missed it at first. But you notice at the end of verse 24, he says that he did not lord it over their faith and he treated them as a fellow brother for you stand firm in your faith. When we go to rebuke someone... As Paul did here, we need to understand their spiritual condition. Well, what does that really mean? Why do we need to understand their spiritual condition? Well, that means that if we are going to a faithful brother who has sinned, we need to remember that as we speak to them. If we're going to a newborn Christian, a newborn in Christ... And they've sinned. We need to remember that as we craft our words. If we're going to a rebellious brother who has been gone to multiple times before, we also need to remember that as we go to them. Because we do not want to approach any of these people and treat them in the wrong way. We don't want to treat a newborn babe in Christ as if they were a rebellious, hardened sinner, do we? We also don't want to treat a rebellious, hardened sinner as if they're a newborn babe in Christ. 
We need to craft our words with an understanding of their spiritual condition, just as Paul did here in this situation, as he understood, as he spoke to them in that previous letter that I do not believe we have, as he wrote in that previous letter, he understood as he wrote it, I am talking to faithful Christians. And as we do this then, and as we assess one another's spiritual condition, as we go to correct and as we go to rebuke, I believe that we do need to adopt Paul's perspective here. We need to remember, Paul was speaking to people who, in a cowardly way, did not defend him when people slandered him. That's pretty cowardly. Yet, Paul still saw their faith as firm. I say this to note that Paul often has a higher view of the grace of God than we may often do, doesn't he? People who had allowed slander, he still viewed as faithful Christians in that situation. It was not that their slander was okay. It was not that if they would have remained in that situation for a while, that it would have been okay. But at that time, they were still faithful Christians. And as we consider one another's sin, and as we consider correcting and rebuking one another, we need to have that same high view of God's grace. And we ought not just assume that everyone is a rebellious sinner because the temptation is for us, you know, in the Sunday morning class, we've been uh, in Romans chapter three, we've been praising uh, God's awesome grace and Jesus Christ's faithfulness and atoning work in our lives and how how much we should have security in God's grace and how much we we should have security and atonement. It's really easy for us to look at ourselves and think, oh, God's grace covers all of my sins. But as soon as we look at someone else, we see everyone else as a rebellious sinner as soon as we see their sin. It's kind of something we all kind of struggle with. God is gracious in my life, but not in their life because we understand our mistakes. Well, we need to understand their mistakes as well. We need to understand that God has grace in other people's lives as well. And even if we don't believe that they're a rebellious sinner, sometimes we can end up forgetting that they're not that not everybody is a rebellious sinner, and we can end up treating them that way or making them feel that way when that's not the reality as well. Uh, when that's not the reality either. And so, with a high view of God's grace, we need to rebuke as a brother, not a lord, and we need to rebuke with a clear understanding of a person's spiritual condition and our knowledge of a of a person's heart, though it's difficult to fully know a person's heart. We cannot know a person's heart completely. We need to use what knowledge we do have of their fruit and how they speak and how they act and use that to craft our rebuke in a good way and in a helpful way. And if we have no clue of someone's spiritual condition, then that should probably be a sign to us that we're not the person to bring about correction. We're not the person to bring about rebuke. If we don't know their spiritual condition, that needs to be left to someone else or maybe even more uh, practical for us is we need to get to know them better before we come to them and correct them. And we need to appreciate where they are in their walk with God so that we do not discourage their walk with God. None of this at all that we talk about this morning should cause us to think, well, I should always avoid rebuke because that's sometimes the opposite extreme we go to. But we should also be careful in our rebukes.
Uh, notice with me chapter 2 in verses 1 through 4. And think. I think what we'll see here is a third thing. Is how Paul rebuked in anguish because of his great love for the Corinthians. He says... For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears not to cause you pain but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you I believe this heart of Paul where he wrote to them out of anguish uh, not hoping for their pain but trying to show them his love it really pours out of every single sentence in here but I think most clearly it pours out there in verse 4 Paul's joy and Paul's gladness was in many ways founded in the joy and the faithfulness of the Corinthians because he loved the Corinthians so much. And so Paul says that he could not bear to rebuke them in person because it wouldn't have just been too painful for them. It would have been too painful for him to see their pain. And so he wrote a letter to show them love. And he wrote that letter, he says, in tears and in anguish and in affliction. Though Paul knew he had to correct the the Corinthians, it was painful for him because of how much he loved them. And it was still painful for the Corinthians. We read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 8 to 9. He talks about their pain and we'll reference that scripture in just a moment. But don't you think that even though it was painful for them to read it, don't you think that Paul's love here that he talks about just poured out in his words? It poured out and was evident in the way he wrote and the way he talked to them? Certainly. Absolutely. I'm sure they recognized his anguish as he wrote. And even if they didn't, then they see it now. They see it in the heart of Paul now. Paul's love for the Corinthians and anguish in rebuking them would have been clear in his words. And it would have motivated them to repentance even more. You consider uh, consider 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9 and how... Uh, Paul talks about how uh, the pain that he caused them and the way he crafted his words would have helped them have pain that caused them to repent. And notice it here on the screen. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. The tone of Paul's letter and his love and anguish over rebuking them would have certainly had an effect on their repentance. And so then it is imperative for us to consider and pause Uh, And ask some questions to ourselves before we go to correct and uh, correct and try to bring about the repentance of someone else. We need to ask, is it my joy to see their great joy in Christ? Do I have true, genuine love for this soul that I'm about to approach? Does it make me sorrowful to even consider correcting them? Does it make me anguish inside to even consider doing that, to see their pain? Some don't have this heart of compassion for those who sin. Some only have this heart of 
being a prosecutor and just trying to explode the sin of other people. And if we see that with a particular person that we're considering correcting or rebuking, we need to stop right there. It is then not our place. We do not have the right heart to go to that person. We are only going to cause more harm than good. We are only going to be caught in Satan's snare ourselves as we sin against them and cause them to stumble because we do not show true Christ-like love for them in the way we craft our words. It is loving to rebuke someone, but it is not loving to rebuke someone with an overly harsh attitude that does not display gentleness, concern, and care. And really a lack of desire to be rebuking them. When they see that we don't, that we're not enjoying the rebuke, it will help them understand. We need to be pursuing then if we don't see ourselves as people who anguish over rebuke. We need to then be pursuing the heart that Paul had here. And really the heart that John had. Uh, I love what he says. Uh, John the Apostle says in 3 John 1, 4, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in. In truth, uh, it was the great joy of John to see his children walking in truth, not to see them make mistakes. Sometimes with the way we can be tempted to bring out and explode people's mistakes, I wonder if we take joy in their sins and not in their walking faithfully. Let's have that heart that Paul had and that John had here. Those we correct will be better for it. I believe as we go on to verses 5 to 11, there's going to be a fourth thing that we see here, a fourth way that we should rebuke. A fourth way that we should rebuke. We should rebuke with a readiness to forgive. Notice verses 5 through 11 of 2 Corinthians uh, 2 with me. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has not caused it. Uh, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, punish, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient and everything. Anyone whom I forgive, I also or anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the present presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So as we consider the context of this paragraph, I think it's important that we remember from the beginning that it was not just the Corinthians. The Corinthians, all of the Corinthians were leading in this sin. Um, It seems as though there were leading people. There were people who led in this sin. And... uh, Whether it was one or a few of them, it's difficult to know. But I believe that's who Paul is talking about here. Now that Paul has showed his exemplary love for the Corinthians in forgiving and restoring and rebuking them with love, Paul now goes on to call the Corinthians to forgive and bring to repentance the one or ones who had led in the sin against Paul. And really, as he says here, the sin against all of them as he caused divisiveness. So 
What we see here really is our need to rebuke with a readiness to forgive. And there is discussion in this paragraph over what person this is talking about, uh, whether this person that's being referred to is the person that is talked about back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you remember 1 Corinthians 5, there's that sexually immoral man who has his father's uh, wife and Paul tells them to separate from him. And there's discussion over whether this is referring to that person or whether it is referring to uh, this person who caused Paul pain and the Corinthians pain by his divisive attitude and by the way he slandered Paul. Uh, I'm going to go with the majority on this one. The majority of people today and commentators today believe that it's not the man of 1 Corinthians 5, but believe that it because of the context here, the context here that's referring to Paul uh, being hurt by the Corinthians, that it's talking about this man who led in that way. So just as an explanation for why I believe that's the case, I believe the context helps us see that it's not the sexually immoral man of 1 Corinthians 5, but rather in said what we see here is this man who had been slandering Paul or or people who had been leading and slandering Paul. And what Paul does now here, I think it's absolutely beautiful, is Paul, though he was wronged foremost, he calls the Corinthians to uh, to forgive him. I think it's absolutely beautiful the attitude that Paul has. He discounts his own pain here and calls for them to comfort and forgive him. Why is that? Why is it that they call that Paul calls them to forgive and comfort him? Well, apparently he had repented. And notice verse 7. It says, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Isn't that interesting to see? Because... Uh, normally the way we can think when someone sins against us is we can think it's our job to inflict the pain of eternal hell on them. But that's not our job. Uh, rather, if we, especially if we've been personally wronged in the matter, we need to remember to go into rebuking and correcting someone with an absolute readiness to forgive and comfort them. If we have a heart of selflessness, We do not desire their excessive sorrow, but we desire restoration. We desire forgiveness. And I think 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 10 to 11 give an excellent explanation of why we don't want people to go into excessive sorrow. He says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. See, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he did not like that he had to cause them pain, but he did not regret it because their pain and their grief was a godly grief, not a worldly grief, meaning, I believe, referring to an excessive grief or an excessive sorrow. Rather, it was a grief that caused them to repent. There is such a thing as worldly grief, as excessive grief, and it only leads to death. Someone brought out in the uh, discussion, Richard brought out in our discussion this morning in Romans, uh, what's the difference between Judas and Paul? 
Well, Paul's grief over his sin led him to repentance. Peter is, of course, an even better example because we see them right there next to each other. They sin in the same period of time. One has grief that leads to repentance and one has grief that leads to his own suicide. And not that necessarily Paul is referring to suicide here, but we do need to recognize that there is such a thing as excessive sorrow that can lead to one's complete spiritual death. Someone can be so discouraged if we do not offer forgiveness, if we do not offer comfort when they repent. Someone can be so discouraged that they end up leaving Christ altogether and then there is no chance at all in the future. Uh, And honestly, uh, if we're honest, we recognize that churches haven't had a great uh, a great reputation in the past for that. Uh, How many people have we run into in the past who uh, they were rebuked so harshly for their sin? That they decided that they would never come back to Jesus at all. Now that's, in a sense, their fault as well for not coming back to Christ. But it should also be, uh, there should also be weight uh, put upon the people who rebuked too harshly and did not forgive and comfort whenever they did repent. We need to do this for the sake of the person who has sinned. And that requires a heart of selflessness when we rebuke and when we correct people. We're not doing this. We're not rebuking or correcting for selfish purposes. We need to be doing it for selfless purposes, to see them restored, to see their joy in Christ once again, to comfort them, to show them, yeah, we all make these mistakes and we're so glad that now you're coming back into the fold. And by the way, verse 11 reminds us of this as well. He says, this is important so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are ignorant of his designs. Satan can use worldly excessive grief to completely bring other people down into their sin and completely destroy them spiritually. Let's not be outwitted by Satan's designs as we rebuke. Let's not be outwitted by his craftiness to use our rebuke for actually a terrible, a terrible, terrible thing. And so I hope we all see very clearly then that rebuking and correcting a brother or sister in Christ, though it is very difficult and it's difficult to actually engage in, once we engage in it, we should not take it lightly. We should rebuke and we should correct and we should not completely avoid that, but we should do it with carefulness. We should not do it lightly. Because if we will do it with the right heart and the right approach, we can snatch someone's heart and someone's soul from the fire of hell. How significant of a reminder that is that James gives us in James chapter 5, that we can snatch people's souls out of the fire of hell. So important then. And so in conclusion, let's remember then, how should we rebuke? Well, we should rebuke as a brother and not as a Lord. That we can be tempted to speak down to people as if they are our inferiors and as if we are prosecutors. Let's change the way we think. Let's change the way we speak because we're fellow workers for one another's joy. And we should help them stand again, not try to break them and bring them down. We should second rebuke with an understanding of their spiritual condition. We need need to know the heart and the fruit of a brother or sister before we approach them, before we go to them. We don't want to correct a newborn Christian as if they're a hardened, rebellious sinner and vice versa. Third, we need to 
to rebuke in anguish because of our great love for them. Because then our heart of love and our heart of anguish over rebuking them will shine through and it will motivate them. Ah, this isn't making me angry because they're rebuking me. Uh, This is motivating me to repentance. And fourth, we need to rebuke with the readiness to forgive so that we do not send people into excessive grief and send people fully into the clutches of Satan. And so let's work for one another's joy and let's lovingly rebuke as a family who desires the best for one another. I want to finish with Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We desire to always have that heart here and that family-like atmosphere here where we're coming to know one another and we're getting close to one another where we can help each other through suffering as we talked about last week. And now as we talk about this week, helping one another through sin. And if there's any way that we can help you do that in your walk with God, we want to do that. We want to help caution you and warn you and even correct you as a brother or sister in Christ. And we want to do that. But if you've not experienced this family-like relationship in Christ, I want to encourage you here to get connected to this congregation. If you live in this area, get connected to this congregation in a real way. Because otherwise... You're not going to have that family to rebuke you and correct you. I need it. Peter needed it. All of us need it. And so get connected to people here. Get connected to this church here so that you can experience that. And if you've not before experienced the grace of our Lord and and become a Christian, you can do that this very morning. If you will express your faith in Jesus Christ by going to Him, coming to Him in faith, submitting your life to Him, repenting of your sins, and being baptized in water, all those sins can be taken away. And then you will have a family with our Lord. You'll be the brother of our Lord. You'll be, uh, you'll be the child of our God. And you'll have a family here. That would be able to help you along in your life. If there's any way we can help you in your walk with God, go ahead and come forward to the front while we stand and while we